The Bob Murphy Show, episode 149. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Well, people demanded it, and I've got George Selgin on the podcast today. Don't worry, in the last, I don't know, 30 to 40% of the episode, we do talk about our differences with respect to fractional reserve banking. So that's in there. We knew couldn't possibly have George on without devoting at least some time to that. But before we get into that, we talk about his general background, how he got into Austrian economics. He gives some good history of the Austrian school from his personal experience, some of you may enjoy. And we also talk about Bitcoin and MMT, which I think a lot of you folks are going to appreciate. And then, yes, we do get into the fraction reserve debate stuff. So I would say if you haven't already read the material or watched my debate with George when we were at the Soho Forum, it would make sense to do that stuff first. Okay, so George, I mean, we try not to assume too much on the part of the listener, but you're going to get more out of the exchange, George, because we get pretty deep pretty fast. All right, and so I would suggest if you really want to understand the back and forth that we go through here, that you first watch the debate we had at the Soho Forum. And then if you really want to get into it, check out some of the links that I'll put. So it's going to be bobmurphyshow.com slash 149. So the only thing you really need to read from me is going to be my recent QJ article called um, More Than Quibbles. And you know that, that's, that's all you need from me. Like that's self-contained. That gives you the history and everything you need. And then I'll put some of George's stuff some of the things like he might have co-authored with Larry White, where you can get his perspective. Unfortunately, it's going to be hard for you to get into what I mean is in order to understand some of the things that I'm critiquing from George's perspective or from his body of work, you would have to go like read a whole book that he wrote. Okay, so obviously that might be triggers. So I'll, I'll list some of those things, but in terms of you just reading quick things to get up to speed, I will have those available, but also the, the longer stuff. So, like I say, I would recommend you watch the Soho Forum debate and then read at least my quibbles piece and the piece that I'll put where, where they say we are not Devo, we're Misesians, that he did with Larry White to understand their basic position on fraction reserve banking. Also, I'll list a bunch of uh, things that George has done at what's called Alt-M that's more recent where he talks about Canada and whatnot and where he responds to my critique of him that has all come out since the Soho debate. So everything is there. Finally, before I let things loose here, let me just read you his official bio. George Selgin is a senior fellow and director of the Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives at the Cato Institute and professor emeritus of economics at the University of Georgia. His research covers a broad range of topics within the field of monetary economics, including monetary history, macroeconomic theory, and the history of monetary thought. He is the author of The Theory of Free Banking, 
good money, money free and unfree, less than zero, the case for a falling price level in a growing economy, and most recently, floored how a misguided Fed experiment deepened and prolonged the Great Recession. So without further ado, here is my discussion with George Selgin. Well, George, welcome to The Bob Murphy Show. Well, thanks for having me, Bob. Looking forward to it. Me too. So why don't we start, as I do with most of my guests that the, I know the listeners are familiar with, can you just tell us like some of your early background and you know how did, how did you get into economics? You know, how old were you when you got into these ideas? Well, uh, getting into economics was one of the few things I did because of advice from my father, who seldom gave me serious advice. Most of his advice was, uh, was facetious or negative, like, uh, whatever you do, don't do what I've done. That was a typical mm. piece of my father's advice. But for some reason, he uh, encouraged me to study economics at one point. I was at, in college studying uh, marine biology, which was my main interest. I decided to take some econ classes on his advice, and I ultimately did get a second major. It turned out that my dad had wanted me to become an economist so I could show all these idiotic free market economists why their arguments were wrong. I mean, are you being the, serious? Yeah, yeah. He was, uh, it was basically a socialist at that time. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of your listeners might think that uh, that he would be pleased with the outcome, <laughs> but he wasn't. At least you're sound on banking, he would think, right? That's a little joke. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, no, in fact, uh, predictably, we ended up arguing a lot after I became a fan of uh, some of the very people he uh, thought I would be uh, criticizing. But uh, ultimately, he kind of came around to thinking maybe I wasn't a complete idiot. And this mm-hmm. was after the fall of uh, the Soviet Union in particular. Mm-hmm. But thus, he got older and more mellow, which he'd never been before. Anyway, so that's the ironic uh, story of how I first got into economics. There, there was also a separate story about how I got into monetary economics and Austrian economics. Mm-hmm. Uh, I tried to combine my interest in economics and in marine science by going for a resource economics, marine resource economics degree at the University of Rhode Island. And I found the courses very boring. And they didn't give me what I liked about either econ or marine science. Mm -hmm. So this was when the big inflation was going on. And uh, big, of course, meaning double double digit. So I found myself wanting to learn more about that and more about econ generally because my econ degree had been a pretty rushed thing. I started reading everything I could get my hands on about monetary economics. And my friend Clint Bolick, who was a, a dorm mate of mine at Drew University, he pointed me to the Austrian economist. Mm-hmm. So I read Theory of Money and Credit, among many other books I was reading on money, and I was bowled over by it. I, I still am. For the date it was uh, written, I still think it was the best thing on money that had been written up to that point, general treatise anyway. And then I read Hayek, mm-hmm. uh, Denationalization of Money. Mm-hmm. And as you could guess, uh, th- between them, those things led me on what became my, my research. Uh, so at, at this point, were program. you in graduate school? I was in uh, University of Rhode Island in graduate school, okay. uh-huh. a master's degree program. I ended up quitting that program and going to NYU to study with Larry White. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. because of my interest in the kinds of issues that Hayek was raising in his pamphlet grew to the point where I realized I wanted to pursue that rather than what I'd been planning to do. So that's the short version of how, how I got steered into all this stuff. It's funny you bring up the marine biology thing just as an aside. When I was an undergrad at Hillsdale College, I was on the debate team. And one year, the, the resolution was something like, humanity must protect the, the Earth's natural ocean resources or something. And mm-hmm. so my partner and I, we did, when we had the affirmative, we did a privatization of the oceans and all, you know, <laughs> thing like own, everyone owns the whales and everything. And we never lost with that because the, the yeah. other teams were just like, that was such a crazy idea to them. Like they didn't even prepare for it. And so, for right. And of course, you know, any objection they had to us, we were just, you know, like, you know, easily knocking it back over the neck because we were, uh. you know, trained uh, Rothbardians at that point. So now I, I know I've read stuff from you about like, how did you hook up with Leland Yeager? Oh, goodness. Um, I'm not sure I can quite remember exactly. I, I certainly ran into him fairly early on and uh, after uh, sometime after I started at NYU, mm-hmm. uh, met him at some events, uh, got, I read his work. I can't remember when I first met him, but I do know that we were corresponding from a fairly early time and ended up corresponding quite often. And, uh, as you as you know, uh, he be, he certainly became one of my favorite right. economists, mm-hmm. one of my favorite people. Actually, uh, I just uh, absolutely loved uh, uh, interacting with him, and uh, I did go down to Auburn to uh, give papers a couple times. Uh, I think by then uh, I must already have been at George Mason, but it may even have been the case that I went for the first time when I was finishing up at NYU. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so is it fair to say you already knew you wanted to go into like monetary economics before, and then you- By and, the time I met Leland, I was already okay. um, doing monetary okay. economics. I had already made that decision. I don't believe I became familiar with his work until after I was at NYU. I, I may have read some of it before. As I said, I, I read a whole bunch of stuff. Sure. But uh, but uh, I can't swear that I was particularly familiar with his work until after I was uh, in grad school. Okay, so ju- just in terms of the intellectual history of ideas, then is, is it correct to say Larry White was what we now call a free banker, and then yes. you were persuaded by his work, and then that's what you became, and then yeah. you read yes, Leland right. Yeager's work on monetary disequilibrium and realized. Oh wait, this is applicable to my research program. Is, are those correct? Or? At some point, uh, Jaeger's work became a part of my stock of knowledge, but I can't remember exactly when. What happened with Larry was that uh, first, as I told you, I'd already been interested in the work and impressed by the works of Mises and Hayek, particularly on monetary economics. And then I applied for an IHS grant. This was mm-hmm. back in 79 or something like that, 80, 80 I guess, uh, for summer research. And I did a project. Uh, the title was something like Competition and Currency in the Monopoly Money or something like that. And what I did was I looked at U.S. history, U.S. banking and monetary history, mm-hmm. with Hayek's radical thesis in mind that uh, we don't need government. Mm-hmm. And so I looked at that history and I was asking the question, what would it 
have been like if their government hadn't been interfering so much? Would the system have worked better? It wasn't quite testing Hayek's hypothesis because I wasn't looking into competing fiat monies or anything mm -hmm. like that. I was just asking whether regulatory interference was part of the solution or part of the problem. Well, it was part of the problem as far as I was concerned, and, and, and arriving at that conclusion was like shooting fish in a barrel. Mm -hmm. You couldn't look at the history of U.S. banking yeah. and consider that hypothesis and not realize how often the government regulations were themselves the source of instability, banknote discounts, bank failures, you name it. So I was absolutely convinced part of that project involved, uh, uh, of course, I communicated with Walter Grinder and mm -hmm. others at IHS at one point. Walter told me about Larry's work at UCLA. He was still a grad student. And he sent me some of the chapters. And I corresponded with Larry, was so impressed by his work on Scottish banking that I wrote to him and said, look, when you get out and get a job teaching, let me know where I'll come and be your first student. As it happens, I'd independently applied for the graduate program at NYU already. Mm -hmm. Well, I got accepted to the program. Larry got a job offer from NYU, mm. and we both showed up together in the fall of, I think it was the fall of 81, might have been 80, and uh, I became his, his first student that way. So that's how that happened. And oh, okay. then my other, mm. yeah, my other influences like Jaeger, et cetera, were through my readings initially while doing work, continuing to do work in that area. Okay. Can you tell us? So what, who, what, Kersner was there? Was, was Rizzo there at that point? Yes, Kersner, Rizzo, Lockman occasionally. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, uh, uh, there were, and Jerry O'Driscoll was just on his way out. Larry was his replacement, as it were. Mm -hmm. um, then um, also we had um, Fritz Macklup. I took a mm -hmm. class with Macklup. And uh, Anna Schwartz was on my committee. She was not in the faculty. She was upstairs or downstairs. I can't remember which in the mm -hmm. NBER offices. And uh, then there were visitors like Bruce Caldwell and Dick Langlois and so on. I think David Glasner spent some time there. Now I can't remember, but I know I interacted with him a lot. So he must have been one of them. It's a, okay. lot, of, a lot of a lot of good people came. Sure, through. sure. As you know, there were always people coming through. Oh, yeah, right. So at that point, was there, because when I was there later, of course, was there, there was like a weekly Austrian colloquium. Did oh, they yeah, have that, that at had been going on. Okay. Yes, indeed. Yes. I okay. presented praxeology and understanding at that colloquium. And I, I dare say it was one of the most controversial Austrian colloquiums that they ever had. Uh, it was it's funny because I was going to, I was going to read a passage from that in a little bit and then like have the listeners say, who do you think that was? Cause obviously uh, they wouldn't have guessed it would be you. <laughs> so well, I do want to come well, back to that. Feel free to read it. I might not guess it was me either. Yeah. Right <laughs> so, okay. If, if you don't mind me just asking, cause what happens a lot is, uh, you know, there's certain names that people hear, but they don't know too much about them. So like, for example, can you just tell us a little bit about, um, well, well actually, you know, you mentioned, Hayek's denationalization of money. So for right. the benefit of listeners who, you know, they, oh, Hayek's the road to serfdom guy. I know he yes. worked, you know, Mises business. Like, what, what are you talking about? De denationalization of money. What is, what is that? 
Denationalization of money was a, a pamphlet uh, Hayek wrote towards the end of his career. And uh, it, too, was a response to the high inflation that had broken out in the late 70s, early 80s, not just in the U.S., but uh, elsewhere in the world, a lot of places. And uh, it was essentially Hayek throwing up his hands and saying, you know, we just these central banks, you just can't count on them. They're just not working out. So instead of uh, recommending any sort of uh, rule or strategy or even a gold standard with central banks, he found himself suggesting that the only reliable solution was to rely on competition as a source of discipline in money creation. But he was not thinking about free banking in the way that uh, of the sort that Larry and I discussed, where the banks are issuing IOUs that are mm-hmm. redeemable in gold or silver or even in some extant central bank money. He was thinking about competition among fiat money issuing institutions, both public and private. And his argument in the pamphlet was that if you really opened the field to such competition with freedom of entry and all that, you would end up with banks competing by committing to maintain the purchasing power of their currencies. And those that did a better job of it would ultimately win out. They would all end up being disciplined by a public that punishes mm-hmm. those banks that do, don't keep their purchasing the purchasing power of their currencies uh, stable, don't don't commit to it or don't maintain their stick to their commitments. Uh, it was a fascinating thesis. I ultimately did not believe that this approach, this particular approach Hayek was uh, putting forward, was workable for all mm-hmm. kinds of reasons. One was that I didn't think the criterion of a stable purchasing power of money, a stable price level, as it were, was itself a particularly sound criterion for overall monetary stability. Second, I didn't think that uh, the public would necessarily favor banks that maintain stable purchasing power. Even if you thought that was macroeconomically a good idea, why would an individual not favor something like Bitcoin that appreciates over time? Right. Never mind the never mind the social or macro consequences. The individual is going to optimize based on what's in it for them. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was a flaw of Hayek's approach. And finally, and this is something that ha- that uh, that Larry's been very good at spelling out, is it, it wasn't by any means clear, and it still isn't, that the optimizing uh, fiat money issuing institution that convinces people to trust it won't be able to profit more by breaking its promises than by actually sticking to them and grabbing a big short-term gain. So these were all pretty serious problems with Hayek, in, in my opinion, mm-hmm. but that didn't contribution to getting me excited in the whole R- general idea. Right. Let me let me just make sure we're not we're not losing some people. So, what Hayek was saying is, just like we wouldn't trust governments with a monopoly on making cars or printing newspapers, why is it that somehow we take it for granted that what the governments around the world should have a monopoly on is issuing fiat currency? And so, of course, lots of especially free market economists have been very critical of fiat currency up to then. But right. typically, they would say, "Oh, we should go back to hard money, you know, like stuff linked to gold and silver." That's right. And Hayek was saying, "No, fiat, you know, I'm okay with fiat currency per se. Just let's not have government monopolies on it. Let private 
firms issue their own fiat notes, you know, that aren't, aren't redeemable in anything. Yeah. And, you know, competition will prevail. And, and so you sort of get the best of both worlds. Like you don't have the resource cost of digging up gold and silver and storing it in vaults, but yet you don't have to, you know, the worry about a hyperinflation when the, when the government runs a printing press too much. Right, because the people will flock away from its currency to some other mm -hmm. superior private alternative. In fairness, Bob, to Hayek, he, his scheme didn't exclude non-fiat monies as part of the competitive choices mm -hmm. people would face. So if a firm wanted to issue a gold-based currency or even 100 or 100% or otherwise, right. or silver or, mm -hmm. or Bitcoin, of course, he didn't anticipate, uh, couldn't anticipate Bitcoin particularly, but... All of these alternatives would be have access to the currency competition playing field. And it could be uh, there's nothing in Hayek that would rule out the possibility that uh, ultimately the market would favor commodity money over any of the fiat monies. That, that's right. consistent with Hayek. Right, right. So can you tell us a little bit just about the field of monetary economics then? For example, compared to macroeconomics, let's say, are monetary economists more... I don't want to say right wing, but like conservative, like personality wise, you know what I mean? Or is that not as, can you give us a sense of that? Because I don't know that field That's very well. It's a good question. I don't, I don't, I don't know. Um, what I will say is, first of all, I think good macroeconomics is monetary economics. At least it's part, it includes sure. monetary okay. economics. Mm -hmm. Naturally, it includes fiscal policy as well. But a, a good macroeconomist, uh, certainly should be a good monetary economist to really be good, be, have a complete understanding mm -hmm. of that, that broad field. And that means, that is, being a good monetary economist means having a sense of monetary history and monetary institutions, understanding those things. So I, I'm not sure that uh, the better macroeconomists, which means to me the ones who understand money, Right. Are more free market, but they do have a better grasp of institutions and monetary mm -hmm. institutions, particularly. And that could, in fact, incline them to be more free market because of history's lessons. OK, yeah. So let me rephrase where I was coming. And I think it, it dovetails with what you just said. What I'm trying to get at is like as a class, economists are way more conservative or liberal, whatever phrase you want to use than sociologists. Right. Okay. And then yeah. within economics itself, I would say probably the people who go and focus on tra international trade tend to be more free market than the people yeah. who focus on labor, I would say. Okay. So that, that's what I'm trying to say. Like, so the people who go into monetary economics, I'm wondering, because to me, like the kind of person who cares about that, for, let me put it this way. The people who go into monetary economics, are they more concerned about the soundness of the currency than other economists are? I suppose, Bob, that it depends on what sort of monetary economics they end up uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, uh, subscribing to. So monetary economists also, they do come in all kinds of sure, flavors. Sure, and, yeah. and, uh, it may be that there was a time when monetary economists, of course there was a time when monetary economists were overwhelmingly hard money types or sound money types. Right, right. We've certainly moved away from that a lot, and, and especially lately uh, with the new new developments in monetary thinking, including post-Keynesian monetary economics and now modern monetary theory and mm. all these. So I think that you're identifying a tendency that is becoming less and less 
evident in the okay. discipline. Okay. That's how I would put it. Okay. Well, since you brought them up, can you comment on some of the recent trends, like for example, Bitcoin and then also the MMT? Just like what are your what are your thoughts on on those two things? On Bitcoin, uh, the first observation I'd make is that it's the closest thing to what Hayek was actually writing about and hypothesizing about mm. in the pamphlet we were talking about. Uh, it, it It is not exactly a, an example of a private fiat money, but it's pretty darn close. I, I've written a paper where I classify Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies like it as synthetic commodity money which is something that, according to my classification, is half like fiat and half not. It's fiat money, and it's it's like fiat money in that there's no obvious commodity value. Mm -hmm. I say obvious because ultimately the distinction between a commodity and non-commodity is very subjective. And right, so, right. but let's just set that aside. The fact is, it's no obvious thing you do with your Bitcoin unless you're using it. Uh, with the intent ultimately to realize its exchange value. But it's like a commodity money in that the scarcity is programmed into it. It's it's inevitable. You're never going to have more than 21 million Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, unlike in Hayek's scheme where the private fiat money issuers, they do have discretionary powers and they're controlling the value of their currencies mm. in a discretionary fashion, instead of having that value be automatically determined through an algorithm that adjusts quantity automatically, according mm. to a strict rule. So, but anyway, despite those differences, the cryptocurrency world is the closest thing uh, to a Hayek competing fiat money world uh, that uh, we've had. And he was, in that sense, remarkably prescient in, in, in thinking about it. So that's that's what's cool about Bitcoin to me. It's also cool that you could have many different algorithms of this sort that are more fancy, that have the supply adjusting to different outside conditions and all that. And I've talked about how, in principle, you could take any any economist's idea of a monetary rule that a central bank should follow or a feedback rule, etc., one can imagine designing a cryptocurrency where it's built into that. And then you, mm -hmm. you throw away the key and you're stuck with this rule, but it could be a very, very fancy rule. And that actually ties Bitcoin not to Hayek, but to Milton Friedman, mm -hmm. who semi-facetiously back in the 70s said we could get rid of central banks and replace them with computers. Well, uh, we now have the capacity for computer-controlled monies that are much more sophisticated than anything that would have been possible back when Friedman first put that forward. So these are some of the things that make Bitcoin fascinating to me as a monetary economist. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, uh, I don't think Bitcoin itself is has the makings of anything like an ideal medium of exchange for all sorts of things and even setting government interference aside that of course is an important problem but one of the things that bitcoin fans overlook is the extreme difficulty of a new private independent currency unit not just gaining a foothold which it certainly has but becoming widely adopted to replace a, an established official currency or any established currency unless 
that currency is a basket case. Mm-hmm. Then the network economies that tend to f- strongly favor an incumbent currency, because by definition that has a huge network, and in the case of the dollar, of course, it's an international network that's huge. Uh, if the currency is really, really, really badly managed, like a hyperinflation, we could imagine the network breaking down as people abandon it for an alternative or several. Mm-hmm. But even then, the dollar has a lot of currencies that are in line behind it before you get to Bitcoin because they have relatively large networks and are not yet complete basket cases. So the chances of Bitcoin really taking off as an exchange medium, not as an investment medium, store of value, what have you, uh, they're a lot slimmer than I think a lot of the Bitcoin enthusiasts uh, would like to believe or actually believe it's a huge uphill battle. Mm. And that's why I like to write a lot about what the heck we can try to do to the dollar, because I think we're going to be stuck with it one way or the other as a unit for a long, long time. Okay. Um, Actually, why don't don't I just keep asking about that? And then I can ask you about MMT because I I know I threw two big topics at you. So as far as the Bitcoin thing, it's funny. You said that about the fiat currency. Because what I have done is I said, look, according to Mises' threefold classification from theory of money and credit, that money can either be commodity, what he called a credit money, or fiat. I said, Bitcoin clearly has to be a fiat money. It's certainly not a commodity money, and it's also not a credit money. And so the only one left, and a lot of Austrian libertarian types got mad at me saying, no, especially fans of Bitcoin, because in their mind, what fiat money meant was backed up by the government, fiat, you know, saying, oh, this is the money, take it or leave it, suckers. And I was saying, no, that's actually not the technical definition that Mises gives if you go look at that. And for one, and, I, and it's not just maybe a pedantic quibble on my part. I think it's important because Mises is not saying, oh, the reason the dollar is the universally accepted medium of exchange in the U.S. right now is because the government says so. Like that's giving too much power to the government. Like you don't really understand monetary theory, at least in Mises' tradition, mm-hmm. if you think the government can just declare something is currency and that, and then it will be, yeah, there's a lot a more involved. Right. Though some yeah. people think that's all that has to happen. Sure. So anyway, that so that's, I, I was getting, because it's, and the reason for the confusion or the ambiguity is back when Mises wrote and for a long time up until basically Bitcoin, well, I guess Hayek anticipated it with denationalization of money, fiat, like, the free market voluntary money was always commodity. That's right. And the fiat was always, you know, the statist coercive forced on you. And so I, you could see why people would think, oh, fiat means. Right. Yes. Well, indeed. In, and yeah. the word uh, has that connotation. Sure, sure. Uh, but uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, Hayek's vision of competing fiat issuers and the actuality of cryptocurrencies are both exceptions to this. And precisely because of the issue you ran into, I I thought it was desirable to concoct a a new category of Mm -hmm. types of money to add to Mises classification, which is what synthetic commodity money is. Because for Mises, what distinguishes fiat money is not simply that the state supplies it. It's the lack of a non-monetary use that's the key. And as I said before, I think uh, cryptocurrencies could be understood as also lacking non-monetary mm-hmm. use. Right. 
but they have other features that do distinguish them from the ordinary fiat monies that we're used to. And that's where I think we need a new classification to conform to a new innovation. Yeah, right. So I'm certainly fine if people say, you know what, we ought to come up with a new term either for crypto or just in general, a voluntary non-commodity money to avoid this confusion. I'm fine. I'm just saying, given the threefold classification that Mises handed down, yeah, if you have clearly crypto's got to <laughs> yeah. be... And, yeah. and just to not leave people hanging. Yeah. So to me, like reading Mises' actual definition of fiat money and like, you know, where are you coming off, Murphy? How could you possibly say crypto? Because like the essential thing is there's somewhat arb- like the the authorities declare by fiat these arbitrary characteristics that separate the money from non-money. So like a $100 bill, that and another rectangular green piece of paper that has a picture of a president that's not money it, there's nothing special about the characteristics. It's just sort of an arbitrary, well, because the U.S. government said this is legal tender and this doesn't count as money. You see, whereas... Yeah, that's with, one view. Yeah, yeah like, whereas yeah. with gold, it's... Yeah. it's um, But to be clear, I'm not saying... what. Um, sorry, I shouldn't have said it's money, but like declaring this is a valid U.S. currency. You see what I mean? Like the Mises was trying to get there's somewhat arbitrary. Whereas like with gold coins, it's not that you have to ask some authority, hey, is this actually gold? You know, like it either is gold or it isn't. You know what I mean? Like that's like a natural thing. And so likewise with Bitcoin, like the difference between, you know, why are there 21 million and not 22 million or 20 million? I mean, that's sort of an arbitrary thing. Or if I'm issuing like in Hayek's vision, if I'm issuing Murphy notes, like I might declare, oh, you know, what is it that makes it an official authentic Murphy note as opposed to a counterfeit? And I could list some criteria, but like those would kind of be arbitrary just to, you know, cause scarcity. So and that's different from when tobacco was money. Like, what is it that makes it tobacco or not? You know, that's, it has more to do with people's subjective needs and so forth. So anyway, I'm just, yeah. I, I think if you read, if one reads Mises' definition of what fiat means, it's not that he's saying, oh, it's backed up by government guns. That's not yeah. what he means by. I think the crucial thing is whether there's an ultimate uh, non-monetary use from which a value can be derived. And you can understand this by thinking of how Mises' terminology matches up with his understanding of the, the value of money and how it's mm-hmm. determined, right? Mm-hmm. So with a commodity money, of course, we have the uh, the commodity value being the ultimate determinant of the value of the units uh, that are used in uh, as money. Uh, with a fiat money, we have the, the famous regression theorem where there's ultimately that commodity value, but the, the government has, as it were, at some point in history, pulled the commodity mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, pulled the commodity uh, tablecloth from underneath the medium of exchange that it rests upon it. And, uh, uh, and, and the momentum there keeps the thing right. as it were, going. And then, of course, with uh, credit money, You have, and it's a crucial classification for explaining some episodes that too many economists overlook. Uh, You have a money that is temporarily not redeemable, Mm -hmm. but the expectation is it will be redeemed. And so you could treat it like little bonds to uh, dated uh, securities. And all of those things make a lot of sense in light of his theory of value. I think, though, when you get to Bitcoin, for example... You have something where it is fiat in the sense that it fits that better than the commodity uh, mm-hmm. theory, because there's no use value. But uh, at the same time, it, it has the distinction of having no, uh, it doesn't have a manipulable supply 
And that sounds a lot like the equivalent of something buried in the ground. It's when we speak about Bitcoin mining, of course, right, right. We're, we're making it sound a lot like commodity money. And that is, there is an aspect of it that is more like commodity than fiat. Right. So I say we treat it as a hybrid, which I mm -hmm. think is what it is. Let me ask you, you just mentioned Mises regression theorem. Uh, so just quickly for the listeners, th that was the idea Mises was saying any medium of exchange uh, to explain its current purchasing power, you can go back in time to the point when it was just a regular commodity and that has to be the basis for it because otherwise, how would anybody, you know, how would it get off the ground? How would anyone know how to evaluate the thing in the beginning stages? That's so right. certainly yeah. its use as a medium of exchange could augment that. And then Mises even has passages and so does Rothbard where even if that original commodity usage were to disappear, the thing could still go on. But the point was at some point in the past, it would have had to have been just a regular commodity. And so yeah. what are your thoughts, George, with respect to Bitcoin? Because, I, you know, basically Austrians are of two minds. One strand of thought says, right, Mises is correct. And this is why Bitcoin is going to crash any day now because it, this, this can't work, as Mises proved. And the other line of thought, well, there's actually three. Another line of thought is, no, this is reconcilable with the regression theorem because Bitcoin's a network or, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then the third line is, like, yep, Mises was just wrong on this one. He couldn't have anticipated Bitcoin, and it, it's a counterexample. Well, I think the immediate impression you get from Bitcoin is that it's a counterexample uh, because it is not obvious what its non-monetary use is. Uh, is that that provided the platform or launching pad or whatever you want to call it to get the thing and get right. the thing off the ground as you say and i always like to use that analogy of a rocket uh booster where you need a certain amount of something to get the thing out into the atmosphere and then then it'll go ahead and rotate around the planet for a good long time before it comes crashing down which is also a, not a bad analogy with fiat money because mm. we know that it tends to depreciate over time. So anyway, I think ultimately for me, the the solution is the best solution to this question of whether Mises was wrong or whether, in fact, Bitcoin fits the regression theorem is the one that Conrad Graff offered in a very good paper he wrote some time ago, which which asks us to expand our notion of what use value means to be more subjective about it and to allow for the fact that uh, things can have a use value that isn't at all obvious. And uh, here I think of Bitcoin as starting out having a use that's not monetary in the strict sense, but it is a useful uh, a token for, for a game, right? Mm -hmm. Like Chuck E. Cheese tokens or whatever. Mm -hmm. Right. What are they good for? Well, you you can play a game with them. In this case, it wasn't it's not a question of redemption value. It's just that you're using these things for keeping track of stuff. And uh, so that very limited in, in, in use was enough. It was mm -hmm. a very it was a toy. It was a little toy. Monopoly money is a toy. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, but it was enough. It turns out that you can come up with something that's brand new and that doesn't have any use until you come up with it and you're coming up at the same time with some things to do with it as you do with a game. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that that's really the answer. I haven't expressed it as well as I would like to, but I could come up with a game right now 
and just invent a little thing that we're going to use to play it. It could be the pieces you use on the board of the game, but you can only use these pieces. That's the mm -hmm. rule. Mm -hmm. The next thing you know, these the pieces are valuable. So the, the invention of a new entity that had no prior usefulness can come along with the invention of, a, of an activity for which it's useful. And that is something like what I think happened with Bitcoin, only it grew and grew until once the thing was established as useful for playing, it became valuable for other things. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I mean, I suppose if people were on an ocean liner that crashed on a you know tropical island, you know, the standard scenario, and no one had any U.S. currency, and they happened to have those, someone had a, a game of Monopoly, and they had those things, conceivably, you could imagine you check in 20 years later, and that's their money, because you know, they can't print anymore. Yes, why not the Monopoly money as opposed mm -hmm. to some other stuff that they drag onto the shore from the shipwreck that, you mm -hmm. know, might also not be very valuable in the context that it finds itself in, like, uh, you know, playing cards or, no, right. let's, let's think of something better because cards are useful for fun. Let's suppose you have a bunch of nails, but there's no wood on the island or anything mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. You could still find yourself doing something with them that could initially be not exchange, but just a, a way of of keeping track of things, an accounting method or something like that, tallies, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, the next thing you know, they're valuable. Yeah. So, so we have to be, if we're radically subjective about this, I think uh, the good news is we can, we can get anything to fit into the regression theorem. The bad news is that if we can do that, it's not clear that we have a distinction between fiat and non-fiat money anymore. Well, yeah, right. That, that was my concern with some of the attempts to salvage Mises on this point was you almost make it vacuous. Like clearly before it, Bitcoin, it be. what he was saying, like you totally got it. Like, ah, yes, he's really teaching me about the world with this insight. And then to make it non-falsifiable almost seems so anyway. That's true. Menger's theory of the evolution of money, though, is kind of like that too, right? The good news is it can explain how almost anything can become money. Mm. The bad news is it can explain how almost anything can become money, <laughs> right, right. right? So some theories are like that, and you have to kind of, I guess you've got to, it, it, I think I'm inclined to see the glasses being half full rather than half empty mm -hmm. in cases like that, because sometimes reality is just very, very, very open-ended, and our theory should reflect that. Right, right. Okay, so I had also asked you then about not that we need to get bogged down on this, but MMT. Oh, yeah. For, for the benefit of listeners who just, you know, like to hear Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez mentioning it, just what, what the heck is it? And then how do you, you know, what, what are your thoughts on it? Well, I don't know if I could do justice to this question, uh, uh, especially if we're uh, to take on some other topics besides it. But I will say, first of all, that it's important to recognize that uh, MMT is a, is a collection of, of different ideas. It covers actually all all sorts of things. And uh, for example, it embodies or includes views about the origins of money, a chartalist views, a modern versions of chartalism, which which do assign a crucial role to the state. Mm -hmm. uh, the state decides what's going to be money. It, de it de decides what it's going to accept in payments to itself, especially taxes, but others as well. And this is the thing that ultimately drives, according to MMT, 
what actually is used in society at large as its medium, its generally accepted medium of exchange. That's part of MMT. It's not the part you're hearing about a lot these days, but it is part of it. The part that that's the parts that are heard about more lately have to do uh, with the question of government finance. And the the principal argument of MMT here is that the government can afford to do anything if it's any government can afford to pay for anything, uh, provided it issues uh, fiat money on a floating exchange rate basis, that is, it has a truly sovereign independent money that it issues, because essentially it has unlimited powers to to increase the nominal quantity of this stuff, provided it has uh, arranged things so that it doesn't have a pesky independent central bank that doesn't want to cooperate. But in principle, you can always print enough to pay off anything. Mm-hmm. And uh, as with many MMT arguments, this one is true. Uh, in some senses, it's true, but one has to be very careful about pushing it too far. And, uh, and uh, of course, uh, the immediate reaction most people will have to that argument, I think, is a sound one. They'll say, well, yes, the governments do have the ability to pay their nominal debts, uh, as long as they have printing presses with which to do so, they can pay their nominal expenses, but not without any cost to society. The most obvious cost is that at some point, uh, creating too much paper money or creating too much money more broadly, I should say, uh, will put upward pressure on prices. We'll have inflation. And it's not hardly, it's hardly unorthodox to, mm-hmm. you know, to point out that there are limits to the extent to which governments can take advantage of the printing press. And some of them, of course, historically have exceeded those limits with disastrous consequences. Now, the MMTs are not denying this. And to crudely characterize what they do uh, is they'll have every, maybe every three or four pages, they'll say, of course, there's a real resource constraint. And that's what we're trying to emphasize. That's all that matters. There are a lot of these phony constraints, like in central bank rules or budget uh, ceilings and so on. Those are artificial constraints that prevent governments from using their printing presses as much as they might to pay for things. But we should not have all those constraints. The only constraint we should have is the recognition that at some point, if you create too much, you're going to get inflation. At that point, we that then you have a genuine argument. For being concerned, for, for claiming that the government can't afford to do more. Up to that point, you have nothing. Mm-hmm. And, and all of this is kind of sound, except that they'll make that emphasis, they'll emphasize the real resource constraint every four or five pages. And in between, they'll talk about it things as if the resource constraint is never binding. So you don't really have to think about it very much. And so they'll blithely argue, some of them. I don't want to be unfair, but some of them will blithely argue we can pay for the Green New Deal and go on and on about that. What they mean is the printing press capacity is there, et cetera, Mm -hmm. et cetera. But when they're talking that way, they seem to they don't say, well, we could pay for it up to a point, but we might not be able to without running into the real resource constraint. 
that's kind of in the fine print. So when they do emphasize it, it's perfectly clear. But a lot of times there's a you get the impression reading MMTs that they don't think we're at all close to the resource constraint and that we might never get there. And uh, that's the part of the MMT argument that I worry about the most, uh, the tendency to honor the resource constraint notion sometimes in the breach, right. even right. as they they strenuously, if you point this out to them, they'll say, oh, no, look, here we emphasize it, we emphasize it here, we emphasize mm-hmm. it here. But there are a lot of contexts in which it seems to disappear for just long enough to uh, give people the impression that MMT has found some kind of magic cornucopia that other economists have been unaware of. Right. I know exactly what you mean, George. Like Stephanie Kelton, for example, will retweet somebody saying like, oh, how could we afford a Green New Deal? And she'll just, you know, have an emoji like rolling her eyes or something like, here we go again. You know, how can we afford? So you're right. It's certainly, they're certainly leading you to believe this is just mysticism. Clearly, we can have a Green New Deal. Clearly, we can have health insurance for everybody. Everybody can go to college, blah, blah, blah. You know, there's there's no, you know, this is all in our minds. And you're right. They technically do say, oh, no, we, we understand the printing press doesn't give us real resources. But in practice, the fans of MMT have been led to believe we can have all of this good stuff if just, you know, we would get Mitch McConnell out of the way. Yeah. So I'm going to put this starkly. Um, by saying that I do not think that any body of monetary thought, I I say this with regret because I love monetary economics. I think it's Mm -hmm. fascinating, but nevertheless, I don't think any body of monetary thought uh, that took the resource constraint seriously consistently would find itself developing a mass following, a popular following such as MMT has mostly recently acquired, that the MMT thinkers themselves may be often pointing out the real limits of Mm -hmm. what uh, uh, sovereign money can accomplish. They may do that, but it is not by doing that that they have achieved this popular following. It is by saying things that sound like there is no resource constraint. That is the secret to MMT's popular success. And just think about it. How many people in the world care about whether there's some subtle innovation and understanding of monetary policy? They don't care. You won't get a popular following for that. You will get a popular following if you tell people they can have health care, jobs guaranteed to them, Mm -hmm. a Green New Deal, a cleaner planet, a new education system, and so on and so forth. And it's not going to cost anything because we can afford it. If you talk like that, you can get a huge following. And it is that kind of talk that without the footnote about the resource constraint that is bought MMT's popularity. And and I think in that respect, even if the exponents of MMT know better, and even allowing that they try to make clear that point on occasion, uh, more n- not not just rarely, nevertheless, a lot of people are not reading their message that way. And if they were to try to make it clear, more consistent, 
the following would evaporate. Right. And, you know, we could say these things, and I endorse what you just said completely. That doesn't mean the leaders of the MMT are being dishonest or whatever, but I think you well, know, they, better, they would have yeah. to know that that's, that's certainly a true statement. That doesn't mean MMT is wrong, but what you just said is, to me, I, obviously correct. Yeah, and I want to add, I want to be very careful. I, I've got Stephanie's book right here. I've read mm-hmm. most of it. I still, I, I got uh, sidetracked. And it's 90% of it, maybe that's a little generous, but I'd say a large percent of it, certainly more than half, is perfectly sound, useful stuff. And it does debunk a lot of fallacies. There are people who are too obsessed about deficits, who Mm -hmm. can't imagine that they ever are useful and so on. There are still people who think we ought to balance the federal budget every year, that sort of thing. And and uh, and also the book's got good. It debunks those things. It debunks the trade fallacy obsession, right, right. and it does mm-hmm. it sound. There's a lot of good stuff in that book. So I want to emphasize this: that uh, it isn't merely by promising lots of goodies to people that MMT has uh, achieved a following. It has it has valuable things to offer, and I also want to say. That some of the MMTs, I think Stephanie's one, uh, Nathan Tankus is another of my favorites, uh, Eric Timoyne. These people really know their monetary institutions exceedingly well. They know the nuts and bolts of how the U.S. monetary system works, including the sometimes uh, recondite uh, legal aspects uh, of the workings of the system, as well or better than most people. And... Uh, they're a force to be reckoned with because of that kind of knowledge. So uh, anyone who wants to just kind of brush them aside as being uh, crazy or ill-informed, etc., is making a very big mistake, both because uh, it's underestimating them uh, and because uh, and therefore missing an opportunity to take on or uh, uh, to to, to really offer serious counter arguments and because you can learn a lot from them because the, the, they have the institutional detail awareness that uh, most of us could, could benefit from. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and I endorse that as well, George. So I know you know this, but for the folks at home, I reviewed Stephanie's book and that's how I basically said, I'm going to take, I mean, it was a long review. I wrote, I realized yes, I can't I just pop it. this uh, off. By the way, I read your review. I thought it was very good. Oh, thank, thank you. Particularly, and, and, I liked, if I may say, to interject, yeah. when you pointed out that the uh, the advantage of sovereign money is not an advantage that can be uh, used to any extent without losing it. <laughs> At some point, right, yeah. you lose your, your money's uh, sovereign status uh, by trying to you like implementing MMT, the, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you use it to the point where you run into those real resource constraints and prices start rising like crazy. The next thing you know, you don't have a sovereign money advantage at all. It's not because it's overlooking the benefits of sovereign money that Greece <laughs> right. joined the Eurozone. Yeah, it, yep. it had no choice. Yeah, so uh, folks, this is bobmurphyshow.com slash 149. So in addition to linking to George's stuff, I'll I'll put my review in there in case you missed it. But yeah, that was exactly the point I took, George, saying this is serious. Like, and, and Stephanie Kelton, like she had some very clever arguments and things in there too. So yes, they weren't just saying, oh, run the printing press. We get everything we want. Like they're, it, you understand why people think this is a brilliant new insight. Um, and, and it's just when, but you know, to us, we realize that, wait a minute, they're overlooking something pretty obvious. Or like you say, they're 
mentioning it every once in a while, but leading you to believe, don't worry, that's actually not going to manifest itself. I think that's right. I think people can read many of their works uh, Mm -hmm. that last way. Okay, let me, uh, we could talk about any of these things, but I do want to hit some other topics here. Okay, so we had mentioned this before. Let me, I'm going to read, this is something that the Ludwig von Mises Institute published, folks. And here, I'll read the, it's a 69-page pamphlet, essay, I don't know what you call it. But let me just read the the conclusion of it. It says, of course, it may be that a world exists in which praxeology would not provide useful knowledge, but this would not be a world in which either purposeful action or economic knowledge mattered or would be possible. The observations of any non-praxeological economics, even if valid, could not serve any useful purpose. Furthermore, theories of knowledge dissemination and of the market process, however informative they may be, can no more replace praxeology than they can undermine the doctrine of the radically colitic society, nor should they be viewed as prerequisites to the drawing of valid praxeological conclusions. So this is a very Misesian piece that upholds praxeology against, or not against, but like is a, is a thing that's separately important from market process economics. And uh, it was written by George Selgin. So this is amazing. Well, uh, <laughs> yeah, I wrote that. I was uh, I was a third year or second year, I can't remember which, grad student at NYU. Mm-hmm. So I was very much a Misesian in those days. Mm-hmm. No question about it. Um, how do I feel about that argument now? It's a good question. I'm not even sure because I think my arguments were clever enough but I'm not sure they were more than clever. Here's what I'd like to say though, and what I do say in that pamphlet that I think is of lasting importance. Mm -hmm. And it has to do not just with my own perspective, but with my understanding of what Mises was arguing when he argued for praxeology. Mises was essentially insisting on a distinction between economic theory and economic history or history more generally, mm-hmm. which is a very strict distinction where everything we think of today as empirical economics falls under the category of history for Mises. And the best book to read to understand this is his book, Theory and History. Mm-hmm. It's a neglected Misesian work that I think all uh, many people would benefit from reading, but uh, Austrians should all read that book. So what for Mises what defines economic theory is just what uh, others have called the, the pure logic of choice. Economic theory is just the pure logic of choice. Economics is broader than that, and it encompasses all this history, which is the empirics, etc. Well, um, in the pamphlet, I try to argue that the uh, the logic of choice part of economics is very important, and we can't mm-hmm. dispense with it. And that's what that conclusion is all about. We can't, yeah. if we wave away the assumptions that allow us to talk about the logic of choice, to analyze it, to to draw out its implications, we're left with nothing. We don't have a foundation for reasoning uh, about economic phenomena. Uh, because we, whenever we do that, we're thinking about uh, certain kinds of fundamental behavior. We're assuming the rational behavior, purposeful behavior, people acting to make themselves better off, et cetera, et cetera. And we can draw a lot of conclusions from the assumption that that's what's going on out there. An assumption that's not necessarily true, but if it isn't, we're in, bad, <laughs> we're in a bad state. We've got a crazy world. 
Mm-hmm. We do have a crazy world, but the crazy world you can't you can't theorize about much. <laughs> right. <laughs> anyway, but if you want to do a lot with economics, if you want to talk beyond the pure logic of choice, we want to start talking about specific episodes. If you and I want to have a discussion about the Bank of Amsterdam or something like that, we've got to talk about history. Mm-hmm. We want to have uh, most of our economic phenomena and most economic phenomena are historically contingent to some degree. They refer to specific arrangements that exist at specific times and not as others. All our talk about those, anything you write about those things, draws on what Mises would call history. It's mm-hmm. historical. Of course, there's the logic of choices is still in there. It's part of your apparatus for understanding what's going on with these arrangements. But you're outside of the realm of pure theory, which means you're not just doing praxeology. You're doing something more. You're mixing up other kinds of procedures. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the component or the kind of essence of that pamphlet that I think I might still agree with. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a lot of people, I think, misrepresent praxeology by imagining that you can you can make conclusions about the merits of fractional reserve banking just using praxeology in Mises' strict sense, mm-hmm. without history, in other words, in his sense. And I say, no, you can't really say much if that's all you've got. You need right. some, you need both. Let, why don't we switch for a second to something less? controversial in our circle like what would you say about like minimum wage legislation like what's the difference between what it is praxeology tells versus history on something like that yeah that's a good question i think praxeology can tell you that uh uh there's such a thing as a market clearing wage and that uh if you have a wage rate arbitrarily set above that level Uh, You're going to have a quantity of labor supplied that differs from the quantity demanded, et cetera, et cetera. What the praxeology can't tell you at all is how big any particular, how big a difference any particular Mm -hmm. minimum wage will make, or even if it's binding, even if it is above, whether it is actually above that market clearing wage and so on. Um, Perhaps a better example of this is the theory of the business cycle, the Austrian theory of the business cycle, where there's there's a lot of writing out there about how it can't be refuted because it's it's part of praxeology, it's based on a logical chain of reasoning, et cetera, et cetera. But while that it may be valid as a theory, mm-hmm. valid and true are not the same. Logical validity is one thing. Uh, applicability. Mm-hmm. to any particular episode, that requires that some uh, history to establish. And it also calls for history. And again, I'm using the term history in Mises' sense to mean any empirical uh, investigation, right. sure. drawing on empirical evidence. Um, it takes history to establish the oomph of the theory. How much does it explain? So you could have, a perf- you could have an episode where the basic conditions of the Austrian theory of the business cycle are met and you do have credit expansion that is driving interest rates below their natural level, let's say. So you've met that basic requirement and that mm-hmm. uh, you have to establish that much historically. Right. But the effects could be teeny weeny. 
In yeah. other words, the theory itself doesn't really explain that much about what's happening in that episode. It must mm -hmm. be some other stuff going on because the 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 Austrian business cycle component is just too small to explain the depths right. of the subsequent crash or whatever. Mm -hmm. So, it, for, it, for an it, obvious example, that you're like, I, I wouldn't argue. Oh, in May. 2020, the reason the unemployment rate was so high was because of Bernanke's crazy interest rate policy. Exactly. Yeah. You, yeah. Or you could, certainly couldn't argue it without having to do some empirical deep diving uh, yeah. to to back your statement up. And it it it's no answer to say, well, you know, I'm sure the Austrian theory is the right theory for this episode because it's logically entirely valid. Uh, there's uh, no errors mm. in the chain of reasoning. It's always right. correct. Something right. can be always valid and always useless in principle. Right, right. Hey, everyone. Let's just take a break from the discussion for me to mention. If you like what you're hearing and you want to hear it more frequently, then I encourage you to support the show. For details, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. Thanks. Okay, well, that's a great springboard then to go into... I know I I only have you for a half an hour here left. Um, the uh, what what the what the people want is <laughs> you and me talking about fractional, <laughs> fractional reserve banking. reserves. Well, we can't so, deny them that, Bob. We mustn't deny them that. Right, so right. We we are yes. Yeah, so we believe in consumer sovereignty. So the um, just a backdrop for people who don't know. So George and I. So in case you don't know this, George, I used to be, I used to be on your side, like you you and Larry White and your. Um, we're not Devo, we're Misesians, you know, yeah, article. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, fo again, folks, this is bobmurphyshow.com slash 149. I'll link to all this stuff. I I used to take your guys' side on that, and then it was only later that I flipped, and not so much on the, like, the ethical stuff, like, is it fraud or not? Because it's, you know, I, I don't want to get into that stuff. And, and also, I, I, I'm certainly not going to die on that hill, put it that way. I think there's ways you could write contracts that clearly everybody knows what's going on. There's no fraud per se. But the one that I, the more I read and whatever, especially reading Salerno stuff that I did flip on was this claim, and this is what folks George and I debated at the Soho Forum, and, and George won the debate according to their rules. Um, he convinced more people. attach too much significance to those uh, debate outcomes. <laughs> <laughs> right, I, I wasn't trying to be underhand. I just meant no, no, I no, saying no, won. I, know, I didn't mean I'm like saying, you uh, convinced me, you but I meant be right, and you would lose, and vice versa. Right, I'm saying according to the uh, you know the official rules, yeah. the, was it Oxford voting or debate rules. Yeah. Um, you convinced more of the people to change their views than I did in the audience. So that that's what I mean when I say Jordan. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so we debate the proposition that fractional reserve banking. I forget the exact word. Is in, is inherently unstable or something like that, and so to me, I was I read Mises and whatever. I believe that what Mises was our his framework. If you believe, if one believes in Austrian business cycle theory, then you think the thing that triggers it is not just excessive credit creation, but any creation of new fiduciary media. And, right. and yeah, if it's, if it's just a little bit, it's not going to be a big deal, but. To me, it's not that, oh, as long as, and whereas in contrast, well, why don't you explain your position then? Yeah, sure. Like the, at theoretical well, level. First of all, the hill I don't want to die on is the hill where you're fighting to claim that uh, the Mises was a himself a fractional reserve banker. Right. I, I don't want to die on that hill. Larry's been trying to mm -hmm. fight that battle. I'm perfectly- Sorry, George, let me just, please, yeah. one minute, just to clarify for the audience. So folks, obviously I'm not saying, oh, 
if me, you know, if I can prove Mises believed it, then that means yeah. no, George I didn't is wrong. Mean that at all, Bob. No, yeah. no, I know you mean, but I just want, but it is so just for people to realize that these guys are different thinkers. Larry has not been so because to me, I, I can't. I think it's kind of open and shut at least certain passages of Mises, and so I appreciate you being willing to say, okay, maybe Mises does agree with you, Bob, but you're both wrong. That's that's there fine are, in my book. There are definitely passages in Mises that. Make it sound to me like he's saying you can't have any fractional reserves without cyclical consequences. Mm-hmm. He's not consistent, but uh, there are passages right. like that. Um, so I, I disagree with Mises when he talks that way. Fair enough. Okay, um, great. Now, uh, as for where you and I part company, Bob, I think part of the problem is it's not so easy as you think to avoid getting up on the ethics hill and, and okay. fighting there while still maintaining that uh, fractional reserve banking is inherently destabilizing. For example, I reread your, your piece in, uh, that you sent to me that was the 2019 mm-hmm. piece uh, responding to some of my arguments. And what you say there is you disagree with the idea that a person holding a banknote, let's say, right, holding a, a banknote is lending to the bank mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. issued the note. Well, it's in, it's hard to sustain that without actually implicitly implying that the note is not an IOU uh, issued by the bank. And of course, that if that's true, the bank not only can cause a business cycle by uh, lending funds uh, that have been provided to it in exchange for that note, mm-hmm. but would be violating property rights because mm-hmm. uh, it, what it's lending doesn't belong to it implicitly. So I think it's hard to, it's not as easy right, to separate the ethics yeah, yeah. from the economics of cycles as you might think. And that's why ultimately mm-hmm. I find myself wanting to say, Bob, no, we have to talk about whether that note is really an IOU or not. Okay. So let me, instrument. Let if you don't mind, let me, try to paraphrase to make sure people are following because I, I, I do see what you're saying now. Okay, so when I said a minute ago, hey, I don't want to die on the hill of ethics and fraud or not. I want to just focus on the economics. What I was referring to is like Walter Block and Hans Hoppe and do, was Hulsman a co-author on that one? I think he was. He um, may, may very well have I, I know for sure Block and Hoppe think this or at least they have in print. Yeah, no, I, I know Hulsman does think, he does, he does okay, think it. Okay, okay. And there's, they would say things like, look, I don't care. Like they're saying, look, at the, the very notion of fractures are being, its essence is there are multiple people who think they're the sole owners of a given quantity of money. You That's know, like, they're like, in other words, it's like I, I give my ounce of gold to the bank and, and a demand deposit account. So I think it's still, I have access to it. They're just safekeeping it. It's a warehouse. And then the bank goes and lends 90% of it to somebody else. So now there's, two people walking around who both think they're the sole owners, have the sole property title to that 0.9 ounces of gold. That's, that's right. the bank. Or, yeah, and at some point, saying. the bank treated itself as yeah. the owner and with right. the right to, to, to sell something to someone else. And they'll go further and say, and I don't care whether, you know, when I opened the checking account, there was language in the contract saying the bank reserves are, because if I sign a voluntary contract with someone that I'm going to, you know, sell him a square circle for $10, that's still a crazy contract. That's a, a contradiction you know, yeah. you just by saying something's voluntary, if it's essence, it's nonsense. So what I was getting is I don't want to 
get into that stuff so much. What I want to focus on is if you believe in an Austrian business cycle theory and an injection of artificial credit that pushes interest rates below their natural level, you know, causes the boom, the unsustainable boom. I want to say, what do we mean there about artificial credit? And and there's lots of Mises and I endorse him saying it's any issue of fiduciary media. Now you're saying, okay, Bob, but right there to answer the question, is it like a, a, a free, you know, a Larry White type free bank in a regime where banks are allowed to issue notes and they don't need to maintain 100% reserves. If um, somebody comes along, gives an ounce of gold to the bank, the bank gives them a note saying the, the bearer of this note, you know, go, can go to any Acme bank branch and get an ounce of gold. You're, you guys are saying it's, it's okay if Acme Bank now, if interest rates, by issuing that extra bank note, if, if uh, interest rates become lower and they can even issue more bank notes with that ounce of gold sitting in the vault, if they think the community's demand to hold more Acme Bank notes has gone up, you know, running their optimization and whatever, they will issue more. They'll passively expand the quantity of bank notes, even though that lowers the reserve ratio. Mm-hmm. Guys like Murphy and Salerno are going to say, oh, they're issuing more fiduciary media that pushes interest rates below their natural level. And, you know, that's going to cause the boom bust cycle. And you're going to say, no, because the community, by being willing to add more banknotes to their cash holdings, you know, cash broadly construed, um, implicitly they're lending to the bank. That's right. And and so the genuine saving of the community has increased. And so that's why interest rates should fall. So you guys aren't denying, you know, our insistence that the interest rate ought to, like if the interest rate drops, it ought to reflect more genuine saving in the community, not not not. just merely the bank printing more notes, but you're saying no, in a free banking regime of the type white and Selgin favor, the only scenario in which the free banks can increase the quantity of fiduciary media out there is when the community wants to save more, namely in the guise of adding more bank notes to their, you know, on average to their balances. Am I okay so far? Pretty good, yeah. I would say uh, our our view is that the free banking system tends to okay. behave in a manner consistent with that. But I think the more important point is the is the theoretical one that, in our view, as long as a banking system, whatever it is, mm-hmm. is only uh, increasing the the supply of funds it makes available, its lending to an extent that matches people's willingness to save through that system by holding IOUs of the banks in question, mm-hmm. then the flow of, of funds being made available to borrowers matches the flow of savings being made available to the banks that are doing the lending, and then you're okay, in theory. And the free banking system, we argue, furthermore, is pretty good at doing that that keeping those things in line. Uh, Not perfect. Mm -hmm. Perfect. And the point I was getting to earlier is it's hard to separate the argument here from the ethical question because our argument rests on the assumption, on uh, on the fact, as we claim, that the notes and liabilities Mm -hmm. that the banks are issuing are indeed IOUs and uh, that willingness to hold on to those IOUs is a reflection of savings. Now, if they're not IOUs, they're still you're still saving by holding them, but you're not offering 
your funds to an intermediary to lend. Right. And, uh, and at very least, if they're not IOUs, they would be breaking the law by lending mm-hmm. the funds. So it's hard to separate those two issues. We can talk about them separately, but the basic question that we have to address either way is, are these things IOUs properly regarded as IOUs? Mm-hmm. I think we can't avoid answering or addressing okay, that question. Right. And so just to continue that then, and so what, and, I, and again, folks, I lay this out more and I give references to George's work in my, the article's called More Than Quibbles, Problems with the Fractures or Free Banking or, or Theory and Evidence or something like that. I'll, I'll link to it, obviously. So what Mises argues, and I think it, you know, I agreed with it, is it's interesting back in his 1912 theory of money and credit, he anticipates this type of position. And he said, there are some who think the very act of holding banknotes means that, that our fiduciary media, so they're, you know, they're not backed one for one by gold in the vault means that the, the holders of the notes are implicitly lending their funds to the banking system. And so then it's okay for the banks to make new loans to people and for interest rates to fall because savings increase. But Mises rejects that. Yes. He says, look, I don't care about the juridical language, but in practice, if these banknotes are what Mises calls money in the broader sense, meaning that, you know, you can go around to merchants, they accept them at par, then they perform all the functions of money proper. And so you're actually not renouncing the, the advantages of holding money. So if, if I have an ounce of gold and I go give it to the bank and the bank gives me a, you know, a one ounce note that I can go around and spend at the store to yep. me, I'm not I'm not saving. I'm not renouncing present enjoyments. I have the same utility yep. from that as I would have had from the the. I'm sorry. It's not that you're not saving. It's that you're not lending to the bank. You're merely yep. exchanging. So you could. I would argue, and I agree with you guys, and and disagree with Hoppe on this. That if I add to my cash balances, I think I'm saving and investing in more cash. And I think Hoppe disagrees with that. So I'm. But my point is, if I've already saved and now I have this asset of an ounce of gold and I go to a bank and just exchange it for a demand deposit, I don't think I've lent money to the bank. Yeah. And I do. And okay. I, do. that's right. the difference. And your, 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 your statement about Mises perspective, I think is completely sound. Uh, but I think he's wrong. Uh, it is true that if I, if I hold a, a, a banknote mm-hmm. uh, and I receive it in exchange for a, a similar, the same sum of gold that I've surrendered to a bank. I haven't given up the money services. This is mm-hmm. a money substitute, after yep. all, and that's yep. what Mises mm-hmm. calls it. And it does give me the benefits of of, of gold. Uh, but the services money supplies to me, any money, don't consist only of the resources I can get by exchanging it. They consist of the service of its availability, which is what we mean by saying when people demand money. They demand it to have on hand mm-hmm. for a contingency. Now, uh, uh, it's very important to recognize that when Larry and I say someone who's holding a banknote is saving and making their savings available to the issuing bank, we mean they're making it available as long as they don't spend it. Soon mm-hmm. as they spend it, they have stopped lending themselves to that institution that is uh, their demand their first of all they're they're not refraining from consumption so their savings has gone down other things equal obviously mm-hmm. and if our savings have gone down that means that uh, if we're saving less presumably we're not offering as many savings to the bank so it's a temporary kind of savings and it could last for 
a day or a month or whatever. The bank's job is to deal with not just one person's such savings, but a whole bunch of them take advantage of the law of large numbers and at any time have a quantity of outstanding credits that matches the real demand to hold the IOUs at any time. And it, of course, can be the case that most of these little contributions of savings to the bank don't last very long, yet in their totality, there's a supply that's fairly steady that lasts a long, long time. And therefore, if the savings, if the lending is consistent with that totality, that's all that matters for the uh, business cycle to not be triggered. So we can all be saving for a day each, but a lot of us, and you have a certain real demand for these IOUs that uh, the banks can lend up to that amount, have that many loans outstanding, and you're still okay. Mises didn't like that because he argued that the very fact that we could end our savings at any time, mean, he, he equated that with there not really being any savings offered to the banks at all. And I don't, I don't agree on that. I don't think it makes any difference. It's a matter of degree, not of any fundamental difference, whether mm. you think of the IOU as a security with a certain maturity, or you look at it as what it is, which is these are technically, these banknotes are zero coupon bearer notes a very small denomination that are redeemable on demand. And if you define it that way, it, it it's not an unheard of kind of instrument. We have, for example, banks do make loans all the time that are uh, callable loans. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this is, this is a bank note holder is making a callable loan to the bank, can call at any time. That's a legitimate mm-hmm. category. So it's callable. The securities don't bear any interest in the case of banknotes. That's unusual, but not impossible to fathom and so on. So I think that if we just look at these things, I think there's nothing illegitimate about looking at these things as little loans. But then, of course, we still have to show that they were so legitimately and not uh, right. Right. against the wishes of the holders of the notes. And that's where you get into the ethics. Okay. So I think, let me just ask you this. To me, it's a, there's a big, a real important thing about this and what would distinguish fiduciary media issued by banks from just you know any corporation borrowing money from lenders in the form of callable loans is that the bank's notes function at least in certain segments of the community as equivalent to the money proper, whereas in general, you can't go to the grocery store and spend a a callable bond to get your food. So to me, I think that's, and that's also why Mises calls the bank notes part of money in the broader sense. So like when banks do this process you're talking about, that yeah, if you describe it in your language, it seems kind of innocuous, but they're expanding the quantity of money, whereas if regular firms do it, they're not so much. Right. And and they are, they can be, Bob. But the point is, uh, once again, we have to think about what's happening when the demand to hold the bank's notes go up. So that means that the demand for real money balances is going up. 
in this mm -hmm. case for a particular bank's brand of real money balances, mm -hmm. money substitute balances. Mm -hmm. And that's taking funds out of the, the flow of spending, right? That would be in itself, a, uh, would detract from the flow of spending. But what the bank is doing when it acts the way Larry and I think it should, in theory, is it's injecting into that flow a like amount through taking advantage of, through acting as a pure intermediary. So the flow of spending isn't being increased, it's being maintained by banks responding to a greater real demand for their IOUs by increasing the size of their, out, that's extended their outstanding credits. And the opposite happens as well. If people start dissaving through the banks, mm -hmm. that is, they start spending more and trying and maintain trying to reduce their real balances, then the same process ideally will compel the banks to shrink their balance sheets and thus maintain the total flow of spending that way. And that's what that's what I mean. Uh, what I think of as a perfect intermediation system. It's not one where the bank's credits stay constant all the time, but one where they expand or contract according to the real demand to invest mm -hmm. in the, the banks, to mm -hmm. put savings into them, temporary savings. Okay, let me throw the thought experiment at you. And you, as you said, you looked at the paper, you, you may have already know what your answer is, but let me, so I get your framework and then I was just thinking through it and I was I hit something that I thought was kind of a, a, a weird quirk, like an implication of that approach. So I want to make sure that first of all, you agree with me about the implication and then how do you respond? So we've got a community, it's initially in monetary equilibrium. And then for some reason, everyone in the community becomes more fearful of the future and they want to increase their real cash balances. So if it were 100% reserves, you know, they'd have to mine more gold or prices would have to fall and that would be painful and, you know, sluggish. But it's a thank goodness it's a fractional reserve free banking regime. And so the banks can just issue more fiduciary media banknotes that aren't backed by additional gold in the vaults. Mm -hmm. And everyone, suppose it's just like symmetrical, everyone's identical in their preferences. And every person in the community adds 10% of newly issued banknotes to his cash holdings. Um, and I guess, you know, they're going to have to pay interest to the banks, you know, to, to pay for those. And then I think to explain that, and then that would maybe push down interest rates a little bit maybe, but in any event, I think you would have to say what happened was everyone in the community borrowed the extra 10% of cash balances from himself. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, no, that's not how it happens at all. Okay. What happens is, uh, let me just take myself, uh, just speak of one person, right? Mm -hmm. So normally I write a certain number of checks off my bank account. But now I want to add to my balance. I'm getting income and making deposits on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. so what I do is I still am getting the income. I'm still making the deposits. I write fewer checks. And that's going to cause my bank account to accumulate. I don't, I don't need to borrow any money from the bank. I just need right. to the bank account to, to stop making, spending as much. I get my extra balances that way. Of course, if everybody's trying to do the same thing, it's only going to be possible if the banks lend more. Yep. But here's what happens. The banks, and this is what theory of free banking talks about at some length, and you, 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 you refer to the discussion in your article. The banks, finding that fewer uh, amount, lower amounts are being drawn off of them and there's less clearing activity, 
discover that they can get away with lending a little bit more because they uh, they don't need as high a reserve ratio. So mm-hmm. the accumulation or the attempts to accumulate cash balances encourage more lending, not to the people trying to encourage the, to accumulate the balances, but to whoever's out there who offers a good uh, lending prospect, right, who has something they can do with funds provided the interest rate has fallen a little bit more, they're going to be people mm-hmm. on the margin. And they're going to get this new money. They're going to spend it on their whatever. Maybe they're going to buy houses or cars or maybe their business is doing investments. That's going to add to the flow of spending. And that's going to make it possible for all of us who are trying to accumulate balances to actually succeed in the aggregate, not just individually, because there is, lo and behold, a greater stock of of nominal money balances out there to be saved. So it, it doesn't call for if my demand for money goes up, I don't have to go to the bank for a loan. I just have to stop spending. The, but what has to happen if many people are trying to do what I'm trying to do is that the bank responds to that by saying, you know, I, we can lend a little more now. Then we can all actually have our increased savings. If for some reason the banks don't respond, then we're in the same world we'd be in if we had commodity money where there's going to have to be deflation to achieve the same ultimate equilibrium. Okay, so the way you're responding to my thought, you're agreeing with my thought experiment. If the answer is what I said it was, that would be weird. It can't be that everyone just lent extra 10% to himself. They don't have to do that. Yeah, that's okay. my point. Yeah. Okay. And the so the, and the way I was getting that- lend to yeah. somebody and okay. that'll allow the, everybody to get okay. their, hold their bigger bank deposit uh, uh, as desired. Okay. And so I think I'm, if I'm understanding, you're saying, even if it's true, like I said, by hypothesis that everyone is afraid of the future and wants to augment his cash balances by 10%, to get there, the banks are going to have to lower interest rates such that other people borrow more for you know for investment purposes or whatever. So the bank's and balance flow, sheets have to grow ten yeah. percent, mm-hmm. and then everybody can have the extra money they want without prices having to fall. Okay, and in terms of credit allocation and the credit market clearing and interest rates being the quote you know natural amount, you would say everyone in the community who who is adding ten percent to their thing, they all lent that extra money to the bank. Because that's, you know, they're increasing, the, you know, they, they could turn those notes back in for gold. They choose not to. So they're implicitly increasing how much gold they have lent to the banks. And then that extra saving is what justifies the fact that the interest rate fell in this thought experiment. That's right. The extra saving in this experiment is measured by the increased real demand for, uh, a sa- for bank uh, balances, notes, liabilities. Right. Okay. Uh, and now... Uh, there's an important caveat here. Uh, it could be that these people are saving more through the banks by pulling out of bond markets and other lending markets. So there might not be a total increase in savings or a general decline in market interest rates, but mm-hmm. there's some reallocation of savings from right. one part of the market to others. Uh, or we could think about a pure case where, in fact, People are accumulating bank balances entirely at the expense of consumption. So they're not dissaving anything. And in that case, clearly you have an unambiguous decline in, in the overall structure of interest rates. Sure. Okay. I didn't manage my time properly. We spent more on that than I thought. Do you have time to do the history or do you need to go? Oh, yeah, let's go ahead. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's do it. All right. Sure. <laughs> so you tell me when you got to stop. Okay. okay. So also in the paper and in the debate, 
we got into. So the two big things that you and Larry, well, you personally, tell me if you think Larry agrees with you. When you say, look at the, the two uh, best examples from history of the free banking regime that I, George Selgin, favor are Canada in the late 1800s, and I'll let you be more specific, and then the, the Scottish free banking period. Does does Larry also like the the Canadian one, or do you not I know? I think so. He doesn't okay. talk about it as much. And I should say that it's not necessarily that these are the best illustrations in the sense of the ones that uh, that were uh, the most successful or the most consistent with the assumptions of what mm-hmm. free banking requires. But they are uh, the two concerning which we know the most, that we know okay. pretty much fit the ideal. Okay. Uh, they're not perfect. There hasn't been any perfect system, as far as I know, mm-hmm. where there's no government at all. But we know a lot about the performance. We have a fair amount of statistics, especially about the Canadian case. And mm-hmm. that's probably as much as uh, as important as any reason why I like the Canadian case, because we actually have a fair body of knowledge about how it worked. Okay, great. So what, why don't we do the Canadian one first? Sure. Because that's, that's I think, there's not as much background that you got to explain for people. And we can, you know, explain our different perspectives pretty fast. So, oh no, I just should have had this pull up. I'm trying to... So I, anyway, I was doing a thing at the Mises Institute, a, a talk on this. And I... And I You're going to show me the, the Canadian I mean, GDP or GNP for the last few uh, decades. Is that right? Is that the chart? Well... I mean, we could get in that, but I think that's that's too oh, hard for people. Okay. To I just want to do the, the the table of contents thing. You know, the one yeah. that you think was a cheap. Oh, oh, oh the here one we go. From, I got uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so here here's my fairly simplistic observation, and then I'll let you defend. Oh man, I just had it um, defended here. So, reading your blog post about the you know the success of free banking, and then you said Canada is one of my favorite examples. And then, and, to, and you said it's remarkably stable or, or famously stable. And then you link to, and there's this, you know, uh, authoritative treatment on this, the period um, under the Confederation from 1867 to eight, to 89. And it's from this book, Breckenridge in 1895. Yeah, and longer so than I, 89. It, it, it goes mm-hmm. on more or less till World War One. Okay. So, sorry, I'm, you're right. I'm, what I'm looking at there is the, uh, the table of contents. The, 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 the chapter, that's the title of chapter eight. That's so you're right. Eight. So the book itself is a, is a broader period yeah. that's covering the period that George says, folks, is, you know, an, an example of look at the remarkable stability of the Canadian system when it approximated the institutional framework that, you know, I and Larry White favor. So I'm like, okay. And George is telling me this thing. So let me go see, you know, what the damage is here. How am I going to, as a Rothbardian, address this? Hmm. And so lo and behold, I pull up chapter eight, which covers the period. So the, the title of chapter eight is Banking Under the Confederation, 1867 to 89, which is, you know, part of the period that George is talking about. So the first few pages is the expansion between 1867 and 1873. The next section is depression, 1874 to 79. And the next section is bank failures and losses, 1874 to 1879. Right. So, you know, just, you know, superficial or prima facie to me, I was like, this is hilarious. And I know you're going to say that it's not funny, Joe, <laughs> because it's like, well, the, the whole funny, point was for Salerno. Yeah. It's not the, Salerno. Uh, it's not the uh, slam dunk argument okay. against the Canadian right. system that, that in my right. So let me show what, like I'm in the air with the basketball trying to slam it. Yeah. And then you tell me why it's going to bounce off the rim. Sure. That I'm prima facie. I mean, the whole argument from like 
guys like Salerno and then me when I understood what he was saying is, what we're saying is the Austrian business cycle theory is going to happen with fiduciary media, not just if there's a, an evil central bank coercively, you know, forcing artificial credit, but even in the type of regime that Larry White and George Selgin favor, banks that issue fiduciary media are going to be causing the unsustainable boom. And so then when George says, look at Canada is pretty good in terms of the kind of thing we favor. And I go and look at it and the guy who's the authority that George cites has, oh yeah, what happened in the Canadian system was uh, when it started, there was this expansion. Then there was a five-year depression where a bunch of banks failed. And so to me, I was like, yeah, isn't that exactly what the Rothbardian would say? In other words, if there hadn't been any boom bust cycle, then you guys could say, see, I thought you guys told me there was going to be a business cycle, but there wasn't. But so I'm that, that anyway, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Well, sir. So, uh, first of all, when, when I say the Canadian system was, uh, uh, remarkably stable, I mean, it was remarkably stable compared to uh, other monetary and banking systems in the world, real world systems at that mm -hmm. time and many since. And, uh, and Breckenridge, who's the authority we're referring to here, says the same thing. Uh, his conclusion, as you know, and you cite this in your uh, article, uh, is, that, uh, is also that the Canadian system was remarkably successful. Now, let's talk, though, about uh, the, those chapters and those chapter headings, because it's very important that we clarify that uh, uh, what they do and what they don't imply. Uh, I should say, first of all, that Properly speaking, the Canadian free banking era begins with the passage of the first uh, Dominion Bank Act. So that's like 1870. Mm -hmm. So the, the period before that, we might not want to include, but that's a minor point. The more important point is that nobody, uh, certainly not me, nobody claims that free banking in the best possible free banking system is a panacea that's going to absolutely eliminate cyclical ups and downs. There are all kinds of factors that contribute to cyclical ups and downs, to business depressions and booms that the banks may be innocent, completely innocent of. And if you read Breckenridge, and I know you have, he says, after talking about these episodes, that the banks were not to blame for them. They were, to some extent, caught up in them. So then, of course, the question arises, and it's a particularly important one for your audience, well, if it's not the Austrian business cycle, what kind of cycle are we talking about? And the, there are all kinds of answers to that. But one thing to keep in mind is that, uh, first of all, there are real cycles. There are real business cycles, real shocks, particularly in agriculture, heavily agricultural economies. You can have a bad harvest, etc. You can also have cycles that are driven by gold flows where there's a lot of gold flowing in with the balance of uh, payments at some times and flowing out in others. We've had a lot of historical episodes where countries didn't have uh, any great fluctuations in the fiduciary components of their money supply. This is back in the gold standard days, but where the real driving force was the changes in the actual gold in the economy. And a good example of that is the, a very stark example is the Australian banking crisis of 1893, it was almost all capital flows and it was gold based. I have an article uh, called Bank Lending Manias in Theory and History, where I show that a lot of the most famous boom bust cycles were driven by gold flows. That's not mm -hmm. a critique of the gold standard. But the point is that uh, 
in any economy, if world economy or any large uh, uh, monetary union, you're going to have parts of that union that are gaining gold in certain periods and others that are losing. And we can speak about the business cycle of Connecticut. And mm-hmm. you're, you're going to see times when Connecticut's badly off and other times better off, but nobody cares about that. So Canada was part of an international gold system, gold standard in this period. And there were times when it was better off than others that had nothing to do with the banks. So that's one important point is that you can have cyclical movements and output. And you showed a nice chart in your article that GDP was not stable, but uh, those movements aren't attributable necessarily to uh, changes in the fiduciary media or to the Austrian cycle mechanism that those changes are supposed to trigger. And uh, Breckenridge shows or argues that in fact, in Canada, the banks were not the driving force. Bank lending was not the driving force in those cycles that he talks about. Um, It's also the case that um, uh, I've studied the relationship between the gold supply in Canada and total spending. I have a little Altem article about that. And I compare that relationship to what's going on in the United States. But for our purposes, what matters is I found there was a very close relationship between the uh, a fairly stable relationship between total spending in Canada, nominal GDP, and uh, the gold base, which is, again, evidence that the big fluctuations in spending that are happening, which presumably could drive, would drive fluctuations in real output are mostly attributable to changes in the gold stock, not to changes in the uh, fiduciary media ratio or whatever you want to call it. So one has to look more closely to see exactly what's going on before concluding that any instability is the fault of the banking system. So that's one point. Okay. And yeah, I mean, I I don't want to get bogged down on that so much. So that's, I think I made my prima facie point and you responded. And then the other one, though, just to mention is, because I'm reading your Altem responses, Breckenridge certainly does talk about, um, hey, like one of the statistics, and you cited as well to try to show this was stable, is how what, what a low percentage of depositors ultimately didn't get their money back. Mm-hmm. And so the only thing I want to mention on that is, uh, well, for well, two things. One is that's not the criterion, you know, in other words, like when Salerno or I were arguing that, oh, this is going to cause a boom-bust cycle, and so it's unstable or it's destabilizing, we weren't saying, oh, and therefore a bunch of creditors or a bunch of you know depositors are going to lose their money. Like That might happen too, and that would be unfortunate, but that, that wasn't You're right. the That's essence of the, the boom-bust cycle. the cycle yeah. theory, yeah. Right. yeah. And, and just like you, one wouldn't argue, oh, the, the U.S. banking system in, from 2007 to 2012 was remarkably stable because no depositor lost any funds. Yeah, of course. Right. Yeah. So, okay. No, my claim is not uh, that the uh, my claim uh, was not that uh, because the losses to depositors were modest, they were m- very modest compared to the U.S. case. Certainly, mm-hmm. that itself doesn't prove that the banks were not involved in cyclical fluctuations of real output. That doesn't establish that at all. Okay. Uh, so that's a separate argument. But but because Breckenridge had a chapter on losses, 
uh, I wanted to make sure people understood that the evidence he was providing in that section was not evidence that losses in the Canadian system were particularly bad. Uh, okay, uh, fair, fair enough. Not bad at all compared to the U.S.'s. Uh, the U.S. case is a low bar during that time, let's be mm-hmm. fair. <laughs> so right. one of the things that I wanted to emphasize is how much better the Canadian system was compared to the U.S. system of that time. And it's important because it goes to the question of whether the real problem in the U.S. was the lack of a central bank, which is what you hear so often. Mm-hmm. And well, uh, in Canada, they they really actually, and this is gets to the nub of our discussion, one of the reasons why I think it is fair to call the Canadian systems and Scottish systems successful is simply the way the people who had to deal with those systems responded to them. They didn't complain about them the way that we complain about our system and the way many people complain about different banking systems today or the way people complained about it here in the past or in England in the past. The fact is that it was notorious say around 1895, it was notorious that the Canada system was so much better than the US system. And in the same Mm -hmm. way in England and uh, in Britain, uh, it was notorious in 1840 that the Scottish system was a lot more stable than the English system. So everything's relative, right? Mm -hmm. We're talking about how these systems were perceived at the time both by the people who uh, had to deal with them directly or by observers from neighboring countries who had them to uh, compare their own systems with. And that's where all you had accolades. Who brags about their monetary and banking system anymore? So now you that does not exclude in itself, of course, the possibility that as successful as these systems were relative to other fractional reserve systems, it could still be the case, I would argue against it, but it could still be the case that these people, everybody would have been much happier if they'd had a 100% reserve system. Um, the problem there, Bob, and it's hard to argue on this, is the simple fact that we don't have a lot of experience of 100% systems, uh, reserve systems to go by. Uh, so it's easy to, it's easy to, it's easy to convince people that, the counterfactual would be everyone's happier. We don't know that. We do know, and I have looked into how actual 100% reserve banks that have existed have functioned, and they had problems. And one of the problems was that they seldom stayed 100% reserve for Mm -hmm. very long. So uh, it's not clear. There are costs to 100% reserve banking that mustn't be overlooked. Uh, and one of them is that in some con- circumstances, they can actually be worse at maintaining monetary equilibrium. We talked about that. Uh, uh, I argued that point earlier. But the other is simply that you get less savings that are being invested productively through bank intermediation, which detracts from potential economic growth. And that can add up to a, a big cost in the long run, especially. Okay, yeah. So let me just restate because in, in our Soho Forum debate, in response to you know you saying things like this, I I tried to make a point, and I I think you know because you're rushed, you only have the, the clocks ticking. I don't yeah, think I, I said yeah. it well. So it, it, I took you said something along the lines of, look at if you go and look at all the major you know bank crises, you know things that historian economic historians will agree this was a bank crisis. You know throughout history, 
I, George Sargent, can always point to lots of other interventions from the government into the banking and monetary systems besides, you know, there were other things going on. It wasn't merely that the fractional reserve banking was allowed. And so if you only restrict yourself to those historical periods where there was relatively, you know, little government intervention, but they did allow fractional reserve banking, those regimes are remarkably stable compared to, compared to these other ones. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, I think And so I, I have no problem with that. And, you know, I'm perfectly happy to say, oh, right, yeah, some regime that, like, you know, I could point to the gulag under the Soviet Union and say that's clearly worse than the Scottish free banking regime. Well, or and so, to, be, <laughs> yeah, to be more serious, so, the English right. banking system was better and the U.S. system was worse than the Canadian. I think those are more germane yeah. comparisons. No, 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 sure, but I'm just making the point that, you know, that doesn't therefore prove free banking is great in, in your right. guys' sense. It's, right. So likewise, yes, a, a system that allows fractional reserve banking and has restrictions on branch banking is going to do a lot worse. And maybe the restrictions on the branch banking are way more significant than the fact that a bank is allowed to issue fiduciary media, you know, that kind of stuff. So that is the only point I was making that clearly, if you're going to look around in history to say, where are the, the worst crises and define your gauge of how bad is a crisis, then the places that have 16 different things the government's doing, like price controls and running the printing press, those are going to be worse than the place that, you know, has pretty close to free bank or, you know, what you guys think is free banking, but allows fiduciary media. So that, that, that was the only Yeah, I think the evidence point I was is to make. consistent with that. Yeah. Okay. Um, do, do we need to stop here or can we bring up Scotland? It's up Go to ahead. You. Yeah, bring up Scotland. Okay, all right. I don't okay think so the Scottish case, so this is the other, like I said, the other major empirical one. And this is the one that, of course, Larry White, you know, made famous. And so Rothbard, let me just read this paragraph. It's, it's not too long. To, to set the scene, and then I'll go ahead and let you give the historical background here to try to explain this, to try to explain this away. So it's odd, one might think, holding up the Scottish free banking period as an example of, you know, this is our system. No, not perfectly, but close to action. And Rothbard says, from the beginning, there is one embarrassing and evident fact that Professor White has to cope with, that free Scottish banks suspended specie payment when England did in 1797, and like England, maintained that suspension until 1821. Okay, so folks, this wasn't like the banks were closed for three weeks. This is three. This is a 24-year period where the Scottish banks did not redeem their notes for specie, or at least the, that was the official policy. Mm-hmm. Free banks are not supposed to be able to or want to suspend specie payment, thereby violating the property rights of their depositors and note holders while they themselves are permitted to continue in business and force payment upon their debtors, dot, dot, dot. White correctly notes that the suspension was illegal under Scottish law, adding that it was, quote, curious, so I think that's White's word, that their actions were not challenged in court. Not so curious if we realize that the suspension obviously had the British government's tacit consent. Okay, so that's Rothbard, who I think initially was liked White's writings on this and then had a change of heart. And so this is you know kind of how modern Rothbardians respond to this stuff and say, aha, you guys, you're holding this up as the ideal they suspended specie payment for 24 years. Give me a break. How is this free banking? Or if this is free banking, I want no part of it. So go ahead. Well, uh, it's a difficult choice. In, when you have a banking system, a free banking system, of course, uh, it, one of the things that fractional reserves definitely does is to create greater risks. There are risks in fractional reserve banking that are just not present in 100% reserve reserves. And for the most part, uh, the the Scottish banks dealt very well with these risks, as the Canadian banks did. 
But uh, sometimes you get a shock that's pretty huge and you're confronted with a very difficult choice. What happened in 1797 was that uh, England was invaded by a French landing party. And, and uh, the Bank of England was already in a very precarious situation uh, such that it suspended, it had to suspend gold payments. Now, that confronted the Scottish people with a very difficult situation, not just the banks, I say the people, because everybody was uh, uh, affected, of course, by, would be affected by whatever route they chose to take. And they had two options. They had been effectively, they were on since 1707, a British pound standard. They were a currency union with England, and uh, it had been a, a fruitful currency union. So now they had a very difficult choice. They could either uh, maintain the British pound unit and stay part of the uh, British currency union, which is what they decided to do for the duration of Britain's, of England's own uh, suspension, or they could uh, break away, maintain their own gold payments, uh, and uh, have uh, an exchange rate. They probably would have had to have an exchange rate devaluation at that point, though. Uh, they chose the former route. And uh, they didn't quite break the law when they did that. They did announce their policy they uh, had public meetings and they met with all the townspeople. There were a few places where they did this. There was only one provision in the British uh, legislation that changed the legal situation in Scotland as well, and it was important. It, uh, it, it uh, suspended summary diligence, which meant that you didn't act automatically have a case go to law because the bank didn't turn over gold for a, a banknote. There had to be an actual proper process for suit. That was the legal change. And that legal change meant that uh, uh, the, bank, the banks were less likely to actually be taken to court. So it wasn't it's simply the British saying that the Scottish banks don't have any legal obligations. They changed the cost, as it were, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, of, uh, of trying to enforce summary diligence or immediate payment on the notes. And I talk about this in a three-part response I have yeah. on this restriction. Anyway, it was a very difficult uh, situation. And uh, the, I, I believe thoroughly that the choice made by the Scottish bankers with uh, their uh, uh, the public's involvement uh, was what the public preferred. They the reason is remember that every in this is a small community and there are two kinds of people, but sometimes one person is both. There are the people who are lending to the banks, and there then there are people who need to borrow from the banks. Two things would have been true if the Scottish banks hadn't suspended. One is as we know, that um, uh, there would have been a, a continuing ability of the savers to take gold out without restriction and without uh, uh, any uh, limitations. The other, which is related to that, is credit would have completely dried up, would have dried up because with the Bank of England having suspended, 
this basically anybody could indirectly just draw all the gold out of the Scottish system uh, one way or the other. There are all kinds of reasons why that would happen because of arbitrage. Basically, Scottish banks would be a source of gold for less than it was costing anywhere else in, in, mm. in the UK. So people faced a really stark choice. If the bank hadn't suspended, they would have had every reason to think that uh, the supply of Scottish bank credit would have completely collapsed. And so of those two possibilities, this is not quite ex absolving the Scottish banks, right? But of those two options, suspension was almost certainly the one that was more in the interests of the well-being of the average Scottish person, including the depositors, because they would ultimately have suffered from the lack of uh, bank credit facilities. So I, I view that episode, in short, Bob, it's a case of a tragedy. There was no good choice. In principle, of course, if you hadn't had fractional reserve banking all along, then this, this dilemma wouldn't have existed. Well, mm -hmm. it would have existed and there would have been a dilemma of having to not be part of the currency union anymore and whatever cost that would have of having an independent Scottish currency. But there wouldn't have been any collapse of credit. The problem is that if Scotland had had that system, it also would have suffered in the long run from the lack of economic development. So I think the average Scottish person uh, was actually made better off by this arrangement of suspension than uh, in the other possible worlds we could envision uh, that uh, either involve uh, fiduciary media without suspension and a collapse of the system or a system that was 100% all along and didn't provide the long-run growth prospects that the Scottish system actually did provide. Okay, so uh, is this a true statement, though? That it sounds like what you're saying is, well, yeah, the, this regime, you know, that we're pointing to as one of the historical success stories, you know, not perfect, but pretty close to approximating, you know, the ideal because they had a fractional reserve system, they found themselves one day in a position where they had to choose between suspending species redemption for 24 years or the system collapsed. And once they were in that binary choice, they chose to suspend redemption. So I'm saying, doesn't that kind of redound to the credit of the people saying, you know, fractional reserve banking is kind of risky and it's not a very stable foundation for your banking system. No, I don't think it does because, we're, again, we have to think of the all the different counterfactuals. So uh, uh, I'll, I'll play the representative Scots person. The okay. one thing we can't abstract from is the actual initial shock, the invasion and its consequences. Let's suppose that it doesn't matter. That's going to happen no matter what sure. banking yeah, system right. Scotland has. Right. Then the question is, okay, would the average Scots person be better off not having had access to a not having access to a fractional reserve system, being in a hundred percent system is when that when that shock hits, or being in the fractional system with suspension, or being in the fractional system without suspension? And I would rank the order of desirability of those three actually as uh, best is what they did, fractional mm -hmm. with suspension. Next to that, fractional with a crash, believe it or not, 
next to no suspension, and the last in the list, 100% reserves. The reason is that although the crash would have been very disruptive, it would have been a, a crash of a credit arrangement that itself had been very beneficial and would become beneficial once again. Whereas with 100% reserves, you're never going to have any of those benefits of having a bank credit arrangement that contributes to economic growth. So you might in the long run still have been better off with a crash than with a 100% system where your Scottish public savings aren't contributing anything to economic growth, your monetary savings. And Adam Smith, uh, the reason I believe that, and I'm putting it starkly to be provocative in part, sure, I, sure. I actually kind of believe this. Adam Smith's uh, book two, chapter two about money is where he waxes eloquent about the Scottish system. And mind you, this is before, right? This is uh, 1776. And he's saying how up to that point, the system was provided all these benefits for economic growth. It's a very profound chapter because it, it talks about how fiduciary media contributes to total investment. And in those days in Scotland, it was extremely important. Bank savings, bank intermediated investment isn't a big part of total investment in modern economies. But in those days, it was really important. And so if you read that chapter and you think, okay, here's all these benefits that are accruing from the system right up through 1776, and they're going to keep on accruing until 1797. And now let's imagine that uh, um, that uh, because of suspension and a crash, uh, non-suspension and a crash, uh, you have this collapse. And eventually it's going to take you years to get out, as usually happens. And then you're going to be back in that system and it's going to go on for another 30 years or 40 years. Uh, overall, I think the economy would have ended up better off at the end of the free banking period, even with a crash than if the Scottish economy, than if it had never had, if it had had 100% reserves from the get-go. That's what I think. Okay, I, I probably disagree. Well, I know I disagree with it, but even if that were true, though, it seems interesting to me because I thought one of your guys' main points was to say, not that, oh, a, fra a fractional reserve free banking system provides over a 50-year time span the highest amount of you know, average GDP, real GDP growth, but they're saying this was a very this much more stable system. Well, remember, that when there's changes yeah, in the yeah. data, you know, we don't have these crashes and whatnot. This sure. is the system passively responds. Whereas now it seems like you've flipped and said, Oh, yes, no. our system might require a huge crash that takes no, years no, no, to no, dig no. out of. No, but because that would be true, Bob, if I were saying that the system that they shouldn't have suspended, right? Now, mm -hmm. I don't think that would have been the right thing to do. I mm -hmm. think they did the right thing by not suspending. So now we don't have a crash. We still have the growth. And uh, and what we do have, what the cost here, there is a cost. Mm -hmm. The cost is that uh, for a few years, there wasn't even this cost. But after a few years, as you know, the British pound began to depreciate relative to gold. And the argument there is that some depositors were made worse off not only by their lack of complete access to gold for certain transactions, but ultimately by this uh, de deterioration in the value of their uh, Scottish IOUs. Now, mm -hmm. it's still that last factor is actually itself a little tenuous because remember that this took seven or eight years. People had plenty of time to adjust their expectations, et cetera, and in interest rates. Mm -hmm. So it's not clear how much was lost 
by the depreciation of the pound ultimately after so much passage of time. But but in principle, there were costs to that uh, solution that was actually chosen. But those costs were minor compared to the alternative of allowing of having the system crash by trying to keep it on a gold basis. Okay. Let, I'll end with one last one, and this I'm being intentionally provocative here to to end this interview, and I appreciate your time. So, what I first I'll say what my position is, and then I'll try to be provocative with an analogy. So, to be clear, I'm not here saying these episodes, the Canadian one or the Scottish one, necessarily prove that free banking, in the sense you guys use the term, has failed. It just, especially the Scottish case, it seemed, especially because you admit in your Alt-M pieces that part of the reason that they couldn't like issue small denomination notes was because they, them, the Scottish bankers had lobbied for those restrictions and whatever. Some so like, of part yeah, of the, yeah, absolutely. Part of the reason they were in this straitjacket, according to you, that where they had no choice but to suspend redemption yeah. was because of earlier limitations on banking that they themselves had lobbied for. So what I want to say is, um, it's not that I'm saying, oh, this this proves free banking in the Selgin White since it doesn't work. It's just odd to me that you still hold this up as an example. To me, it's like if Milton Friedman's arguing for why we need a all-volunteer military and he pointed to the U.S. during the years of the Vietnam War is his prime example of why an all-volunteer military works. And people are like, but, but there was a draft. He goes, right, but I mean, if you look and you can see, I can, like, it's not that he would be wrong, but it just, that would be a weird thing. So likewise... It seems weird you're pointing this period where there was a 24-year suspension is a vindication of your guys, you know, theoretical model where the banks optimize and the reserve ratio because we don't, you know, if somebody shows up and we can't redeem, we're done for. And so that's how we optimize the, you know, reserve ratio. And yet, anyway, I think yeah. you get my, my well, point. Well, first of all, we're not, we're not focusing on that period necessarily. Uh, Scottish banking has a history of about a about a century, depending okay, on where you yeah. slice it. Mm-hmm. Uh, some would take it back even as early as about some, uh, as the Act of Union, even, and mm-hmm. uh, and it goes on, by the way, for some time beyond Peel's Act uh, or that Act's extension to Scotland in, in in 1845, because for some time after that, a few decades anyway, not much changes. That that Act doesn't become all that binding. So there's a long history there. That's one okay. point. Uh, the other, a second point is one I stressed before. We, we we can't be too fussy because free banking hasn't been allowed that often. We have to choose from among the episodes that most closely approximate it, and not perfect. And among those, we we naturally want to look at those for which we have a fair amount of information. And lo and behold, one of those is Scotland, and darn it, they had this suspension. But that's the next point, which is uh, there's nothing in our theory that says that Scott, a, a free banking system is is going to be immune to rare but serious shocks like an invasion. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's going to be a problem for all sorts of systems. And, uh, and it's going to mean that for a while they're not doing what they normally do, though you can still theorize about reserves and all that. But it's British pounds now that the mm-hmm. Bank of England money, that's the reserve, the, the proximate reserve. Um, but we have to, again, be, 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 be fair here. We have to ask ourselves what, you know, what's the counterfactual? I could imagine, I wish we had more evidence, but and I think we probably could come up with some. 
I can imagine a country that's got a 100% reserve system, right? Maybe, uh, uh, who knows what the underpinnings are, where an invasion causes a dramatic change. The government decides to start manipulating the system or whatever. And so all kinds of things can happen when you have a big enough shock to any system that uh, it make it difficult to argue that any arrangement is immune to any sort of uh, contingency. And so I think the way the Scottish banks handled this very serious contingency, given their relationship with England, and, you know, this isn't just a neighboring country. This right. is London and the financial center for the world at the time. It's not so easy to to break away from that uh, uh, system costlessly. I was should have mentioned that it can be done when the U.S. in the Civil War suspended gold payments. The West Coast of Oregon uh, and California, especially, they went they they kept on the gold dollar. Yeah. And not only that, they were on something like 100 percent reserve because they didn't like banks, which is one reason why it was easier mm-hmm. for them to do that, because if they'd had fiduciary media, they would have had a crash. So that's an interesting counterexample, but I'm not sure they were better off than they would have been if they'd had a flourishing banking system like the rest of the country. Uh, they did have a different gold unit. So this would be a, a, a comparison worth exploring for the sake of this debate. Uh, uh, so it's possible. But I, I, again, we have to, we're stuck with the examples that we have. And, uh, and I don't think you can judge a system according to what happened when it was exposed to an extreme shock of the sort that might happen once in a century, if that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the Scottish system handled that shock pretty well. We might wish we could have had a better uh, situation, but I'm not sure it's easy to imagine that the system could have come up with a better solution. Okay, well, and, and fair enough, and thanks. And yeah, you in your gold standard essay uh, that you sent me a couple of weeks ago, I saw that that was the first time I'd heard about how the Western banks stayed on. So yeah, that that was something that I wish we had more time. I would ask you to elaborate on. Okay, folks, this is bobmurphyshow.com slash 149. Of course, I'll give links to all the stuff we've talked about. Uh, my guest has been George Selgin. George, thanks so much for your time, and I'm sure people got a lot out of this. I hope they do, Bob. I've enjoyed it myself. Appreciate the opportunity. Okay, take care. Bye. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.